Good morning, church. I want to encourage you to take your Bibles, and if you're taking notes or if you've got a pencil, you want to jot down these passages of Scripture because we're going to be moving through them this morning. These will not be on the screen, and so I want to encourage you to use your Bibles or look on with someone who has one or use your iPhone or iPad or whatever you have with you to uh, look up the Scripture. So uh, the first one we're going to be looking at is found in Galatians chapter 5. The next is Ephesians chapter 5. So Galatians 5, Ephesians 5. The third one is John chapter 7. And the last one is Isaiah 44. And so I want to encourage you to find those chapters, jot those down, and we're going to be moving through those this morning. We're talking today about life in the Spirit. Perhaps the most needed and the most neglected topic as we consider all in which we study the Bible in North America. You say, well, Pastor, how do you know that? Because I meet individual believers and pastors who are tired, who have been trying and trying and trying and trying to live a life that they believe pleases God, and they find themselves failing again and again. And for that person who is conscientious, that poses a real problem. Uh, some of us, perhaps, have settled down and just said, well, that's just what the Christian life is. It's just trying and trying, never getting there, but trying and trying and trying, just exhausting yourself, trying to be a good Christian person. Others keep seeking, keep looking. When we consider churches in North America, we see a church that's not merely under attack, but we see a church that's being overrun with a kind of mindset that we can do it ourselves. Now, we would never say, I don't need God, but we go about our work as if he doesn't exist. We talk about ministry, and we never mention God. We never mention the Holy Spirit. We talk about growing churches. We never mention God. We never mention the Holy Spirit. We talk about getting people into the building. We never talk about God or talk about the Holy Spirit. We don't talk about prayer. And so we point to a few churches across the country that are growing, and we say, well, that must be the way to do it. And then everybody tries to go and do it the way that they're doing it. And yet, overall, numerically, the church in North America, as far as church attendance is concerned, is decreasing all the time. Decreasing. And that is not the church that we read about in the Bible. That's not even the church we see in church history, we see a church that is operating differently, seems to have a joy, a vibrancy, and we read those passages in the book of Acts, we read those passages in church history, and we say, what did they have that I don't have? I believe that we need to talk today about life in the Spirit, life in the Spirit. This is not a way of life that's an alternative for Christians. This is the Christian life. This is life that God intended for you from the very day that you were saved. When you became a Christian, you understood that Jesus Christ died for you on the cross. And that when he died on the cross, he carried your sins away. Everything offensive in your life, he took on himself on the cross. And all the punishment your sins deserved Literally, an eternity of hell was poured out on the Son of God, on Jesus Christ, and he took your place. He took your punishment. 
But dear one, that's only part of the gospel. There's more to the good news. And that good news is that same Savior who died for you on the cross, when you became a Christian, came through his Holy Spirit and took up residence inside of you. And so every Christian here is truly a miracle. Every Christian here, if you're a Christian, Christ lives in you. Christ lives in you. And that is the fuel, that is the power for the abundant life, for the Christian life. And so I want us to give our attention to that today because I believe many Christians are discouraged on this topic of the Holy Spirit and how to live life the way God intended, the way God created us to live it as his sons and as his daughters. And so I want to consider just one word at a time, and and it's almost like a detective uh, mystery as we move through the scripture because we're going to be answering, I believe, some fundamental questions that I have had throughout my life as a believer about what it means to have life in the Spirit. So the first thing I want to talk to you about when we, when we mention life in the Spirit is what does this life look like? And so I'm going to use these chairs to sort of picture the different phases or I hate to use the word steps, but the different truths that I want us to see about life in the Spirit. So the first one is the word walk. The first word I want you to think about is the word walk. What does this life look like? Well, over and over again, one of the ways it's described is as a walk. And so the passage of Scripture I want to call your attention to is found in Galatians 5. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 16. I can't read the entire passage, but I think I can read enough to get you turned on to the truth that's there. And again, this is... um, These are family notes, so if you're a believer today, this is truth that you desperately need. Galatians 5, verse 16, Paul writes, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, how many of you have ever felt the lust of the flesh? Dear one, this should be a unanimous vote. If you haven't felt the lust of the flesh, something is very broken about you, okay? We all feel the lust of the flesh. Those are the, those desires that we have to ultimately to do life without God. Uh, most of the sins that we think about, that we commit, are actually the symptoms or the consequences of doing life without God. And so he says, if you walk in the Spirit, you do life with God, walk in the Spirit, and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That doesn't mean you won't feel it. I mean, we feel temptation, we feel desire, we feel those things to do things that that we shouldn't do. We feel it, but he says you won't fulfill it, you won't bring it to fruition. And so in this walk of walking in the Spirit, there's something about that walk that enables you to do life in a way that you don't fulfill those desires, those sinful desires. I'm going to keep reading, verse 17. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit. And the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. And so inside the Christian, you have a battle going on. Inside every true Christian, there's a battle. If this battle isn't taking place, you have no evidence that you're a Christian this morning. There's a battle between the spirit of God and your human flesh. Again, your flesh is that that way of life, that body of desires that wants to do life without God. And inside of you, there's your will, what you want to do, and one set of desires, and then there's the desire of God, the Spirit of God, and they are in clashing with one another. Sometimes I talk to people, 
and they say, I'm just so discouraged, I, I want to please God, I want to do the right thing, and I keep failing, I keep messing up, I keep failing, I keep messing up. And I say, you know what? I got a word of encouragement for you. The very fact that you're struggling, the very fact that there's a battle inside of you is evidence that the Holy Spirit of God lives inside you. So I'm not saying you ought to just give in every time. I'm just saying rejoice that there's a battle because it's the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work. And so um, now verse 19, he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are, and he gives a laundry list of sinful behaviors, sinful actions, sinful attitudes and activities, and, and it's not an exhaustive list. He's just describing what it looks like when you are giving yourself to those desires. All this stuff comes out, okay? Because you're not doing life with God, you're doing life in your own ability, you're doing life with the flesh, and all the works of the flesh come out, and it's ugly. It's not pretty, is it? It's ugly. And so, so one of the ways you and I can react to that is I can try harder next time. And so let's say I, I told a, a lie, maybe not a big one, just a white lie, a little lie, but I told a lie. Well, next time I'm going to tell the truth. And that opportunity comes, and I know I don't tell the truth, and I don't tell the truth. I lie again. And I keep trying. And, and then as I get older, the challenges get bigger, and I get tempted to do bigger things. And I keep trying to stop. I keep trying to stop, and I can't stop. What is causing all of that? It's the flesh driving that. And by the way, it's the flesh that lures you into thinking that you can conquer the flesh with the flesh. That you don't need God, you can do it yourself. And, and so the flesh, the works of the flesh are evident. Now in verse 22 it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is. And so inside of you you have flesh, one set of desires to do life without God, and then the Spirit, another set of desires, and it says the fruit of the Spirit is, and it lists nine qualities there. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now what's, we're going to see something really significant about that in a moment, but basically those are very good descriptions of Jesus Christ. And so as the Spirit has dominance, as we yield to the Spirit, as I walk in the Spirit, He produces a different kind of life a different kind of character, a different approach to people and situations. Most of those, most of the fruit of the Spirit, you got to have another person in the room to do them. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. You can't do long-suffering without somebody around that you have to suffer long with. Don't look at anybody, but long-suffering. So most of those qualities require an environment where there are other people. And, and so the Spirit is working to produce one way of life in you and the flesh is naturally without any help is going to produce another way of life and and so he says and then he says in verse 25 if we live in the spirit let us also walk in the spirit let us not become conceited that's the flesh provoking one another envying one another now he's talking to christians and what's interesting is is in verse 16 he says walk in the spirit you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh that word walk means to walk around, walk in the Spirit. And so wherever I go, the Holy Spirit is to be my environment. He lives in me, but I am in the realm of the Spirit when I'm walking in the Spirit. He is, he is imminent, He is near, He is close, He is present. There's a consciousness in my mind that He is present first because I trust that it's true, the Bible says it, and then experientially there are those times where I just know God is near. And that's a whole other message. 
But he says, walk in the Spirit. Walk under his influence, walk under his direction, his guidance, and so you walk in the Spirit, and as you walk in the Spirit, he produces these changes in you. But then he says, verse 25, if we live in the Spirit, if he's the one that gives us life, spiritual life, let us also walk in the Spirit. Different word for walk. The first word is walk around. If you walk in the Spirit, you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The second word, if we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit, means to keep in step with. And some of your versions will actually translate it that way, keep in step with the Spirit. Now we have a different picture. If I keep in step, if Van Paschal is up here, and we're walking side by side, and my goal is to try to keep in step with Van, okay, then when he would step, what would I do? I would step like he steps. And if he took another step, what would I do? I'd take a step like him. And so to keep in step with someone else, keep in step with the Spirit means he's, he's leading and I'm following. He's, taking, he's moving in certain directions and ways, and I'm moving those, other, those same directions and ways. And so what's described here is a life of obedience, a life of a response to the Holy Spirit in your life. And so the first word I want you to see is walk. Now, one of the great illustrations of this, and I didn't tell you to look this up, but you might want to jot it down, is found in the book of Acts. Now, all through the book of Acts, you see people under the influence of the Holy Spirit. But one of the great passages that describes this is found in Acts 16. You don't need to turn there, but you might want to jot it down. Acts 16, verse 6. Now, now before this happens, you need to see that there are all kinds of examples in the book of Acts of people who heard the Holy Spirit say something to them, and they responded to what he said, obeyed him, and did what he said. Uh, Philip heard the Holy Spirit say, go near and overtake this chariot in Acts chapter 8. And, and he runs up to this chariot, and there's a guy reading the Bible at the very moment that he runs up to the chariot. Now, now Philip's not that smart, and, in, and he didn't have super hearing or supervision to know that was happening. He just was following the impulse of the Spirit. Holy Spirit said, go near and overtake this chariot. Uh, but you also see a, a way of life taking place. You see, in Acts chapter 10, you see Peter up on a rooftop waiting for lunch. Now, I don't know what you do when you're waiting for something to happen. Maybe you turn on the TV, you, you look at your phone, that kind of thing. Peter was on the roof, and, and he was up there to be alone with God, just to be alone. He had a few quiet moments. He's, he just went to be alone with God, to shut himself off with God. And it says while he was there, while he was in this praying, it says he had a vision. And the result of this interaction with the Lord is that the Lord told him, there's some guys coming from a man named Cornelius. You need to go with them, and you need to go, go see Cornelius. But what was, what was Peter doing? He was just worshiping the Lord. He was just alone with God. He was waiting for lunch. But where did his heart go? It went over to where the God was. Do you think he was walking in the Spirit? Yes. Do you think he was sensitive or conscious that the Holy Spirit was with him always? Yes. He's conscious of the Spirit's activity in his life. And so we have this, this word, walk. And, and so in Acts 16, the Apostle Paul is traveling through modern-day Turkey then we would just call it Asia Minor. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. So he's moving from east to west, and he wants to go southwest into the province of Asia where this massive city was, Ephesus, 
the third largest metropolitan area in the Roman Empire. He wants to go there. And it says, as he moved that direction, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Now, for the Spirit to forbid someone to do something, to me, suggests that there was some communication taking place. That Paul was not just pulling out his map and saying, I think we'll go to Asia. God bless us as we go to Asia. He wasn't doing that. What was he doing? This is the man who taught us to keep in step with the Spirit, wasn't it? He teaches us to keep in step with the Spirit. And so as he walked, what was he doing? God, should I go here? Lord, is this the next stop? And um, in order to be forbidden means that someone was asking. And the Holy Spirit spoke to him. So it says next, in the next verse, it says in verse 7, Acts 16, after they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia. That's turning northeast, but the spi- northwest, but the Spirit did not permit them. Once again, forbidden to go southwest, forbidden to go northwest. So what does he do? He goes straight ahead. And the Bible says, so passing by Mysia, they came down the Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And ultimately, that resulted in Paul going to Europe and taking the gospel for the first time to Europe. Two no's and a vision or a dream. But what was happening? Just walking with God. Just doing life with God. This is what God called me to do, so I'm moving this way. Lord, you want us to go here? No. Lord, you want us to go here? No. Well, let's go down here and spend the night. And in the night, God speaks to him. Walk. Walking in the Spirit suggests a life of, of a companionship, a relationship with the indwelling Spirit of God, where He is able to speak to us and guide us and direct us, and we are saying, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, walking in the Spirit. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Now, I don't know about you, but you should be asking the question, what is the source of a life like that? How, how does that happen? How does someone get to a place where they're walking in the Spirit? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're going to move to the next chair, okay? And the next word I want you to, to, to hear or see is be filled. We move from walk to be filled. And you say, how, how does that happen? Well, we're going to see that if you turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, okay? And as he writes to them, he says... Ephesians 5, verse 15, see then that you walk, here's the word for walk, okay, walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Verse 16, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. If you're going to live your life every day, you ought to know what the will of God is for each day. What does God want me to do today? A day where I'm not living out the will of God is a wasted day. The days are evil. You don't have to read very far in the news to see that. Got dear people being shot down in a synagogue. You got brothers and sisters. We got students at Williams Baptist College. They got family back home. They're being persecuted because they're Christians in other countries. Being threatened with death and all kinds of horrible things. We live in evil days dark days. 
I can't imagine a better day to know what the will of God is. And so we keep reading verse 18, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So if I'm going to walk circumspectly, if I'm going to walk the way God wants me to walk, this is what he's saying to do. Be filled with the Spirit. And then he says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Be filled with the Spirit. Before I can walk in the Spirit, I need to be filled with the Spirit. It's a command. When Paul writes these words, he does it with a special kind of Greek to say this is not an option, reader. This is a command. Be filled with the Spirit. This is passive. You can't do this for yourself. You can't fill yourself up with the Spirit. It's something he does to you. It's continuous continuously happening, be being filled with the Spirit. It's not something that happens one time, boom, and you're done. It's be being filled with the Spirit. And so this picture of being filled uh, is this idea really of being of overflowing. It's kind of an overflowing life. Be being filled means constantly be filled, constantly be filled, constantly be filled. It's got to go somewhere, so it just overflows. And it's kind of an overflowing word picture of what God wants to do in your life when he says be filled with the Spirit. And, and so God has a, has a will for you and me. It involves being filled with the Spirit. In fact, what's really clear in this text is I can't know the will of God without the Spirit of God. I can't, I can't follow him each day. I can't walk without him. And so when we talk about walking in the Spirit and uh, producing the fruit of the Spirit, it's not something that you do. He says, be filled with the Spirit the Spirit doesn't come and say, okay, I'm going to put love in there. Open up. I'm going to put some love in there. I'm going to put some joy in there. God, give me some joy. He said, I'm going to put some joy in there. He doesn't do that. He says, be filled with the Spirit. We're filled with a person. We're filled with God himself, the Holy Spirit of God. Be filled with the Spirit means let him go in every part of you, your being, every part of your memory, every part of your thinking, every part of your words and your speech and your hands and your, your feet and your actions. Let him fill every part of you. Don't hold anything back. Give it all to him. He says when that happens, be being filled with the Spirit. There are these amazing they're participles, these amazing words here. The first one, verse 19, says speaking. When you're filled... These are the natural results. He said, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What does that mean? It means we just, we talk about Jesus. We, we speak to one another about the Lord. We speak about things that give him praise. We speak about things that give him honor. And uh, it's, it's like our very daily speech becomes expressions of worship of God. Speaking to one another. And then he says, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Suddenly, it's not what we're doing with one another. This is something going on inside of me. Singing, making melody in my heart to the Lord, not to anybody else. We come in here, we sing. They're not singing to us. We're not singing to them. In my heart to the Lord. He's the audience. 
And, and so when someone's filled with the Spirit in this context of this relationship, there's this desire to talk about Him, to express worship and praise to people around me, to talk about Him. Let me tell you what God's been doing in my life. There's this inner uh, sense of worship taking place. Bless God, bless God, bless God. And then he goes on, he says, giving thanks always for all things to the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the life of a person who, who, who is always receiving something. We taught our kids when someone would give them something when they were little. And we, we know how to do that because we have to teach six of them, good grief. You have to, and you know you can't tell kids just something one time, right? Y'all know that. Someone comes and gives them something. Here, here little Pusick number one. Here, little Pusick number two. They give them something. And, and they just sit there and they take it. You know, that's usually when they're little and short. They do so. You know? And what do you have to say as a parent? Say thank you. Say thank you. Learn that when someone gives them something, what do you do? You say thank you. This person who's filled with the Spirit has such that God is always giving them something. God is always supplying them with something. That he is their life and he's constantly giving them things. And when everything happens, thank you, Jesus. Something good happens, thank you, Lord. Something bad happens, thank you, Jesus. Not because something bad happened, because I know God is a way for me through this bad thing. And so I say, thank you, Lord. Even in the midst of my... Count it all joy, James says, when you fall in the various trials. Why? Because God's at work. Another opportunity to trust him and to receive the supply that he gives to me in those tough times. Thank you, Lord. And he says this person filled with the Spirit is giving thanks always for all things. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. And, and so the fundamental posture or attitude of this person in relationship to other Christians is submission. Submission. Not trying to be over others, but yielded to others. How can I help you? How can I serve you? How can I bless you? Not, not this attitude of superiority, but an attitude of, of a servant, of a servant, submitting to one another. As you keep reading through Ephesians 5, it talks about these different relationships. I'm about to sit in the wrong chair. This is the, this is the being-filled chair, okay? And, um, and so he talks about these four activities, speaking to one another, the inner worship that takes place, expressing gratitude to the Lord. It's an attitude of gratitude all the time. And then the submitting to one another. What well, affects the relationships, the fundamental relationships that you and I have. Some of you are struggling in your marriage. And he says that women, he says to wives, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. Then he says wives to husbands. In the English, they put the word submit to your husbands. That's not there. Where does the word submit come? From the previous verse. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives to your husbands as to the Lord. So when a wife is filled with the Spirit, and this is the only way a woman can submit to her husband, when she's filled with the Spirit of God, she can yield to her husband's leadership in her home. You say, boy, that is pretty bad in this day. Those are bold words, preacher, to say that today. Listen, the Bible says it. And the Bible says that the goal of a marriage is that a husband and wife become one. And that's not possible if there are two heads. You know, if 
when I used to go to the circus, if they said, come in here, pay a quarter, you can see something with two heads. You know, that was pretty interesting. That was entertainment. It's pretty sad, though, in a marriage. And so it says, wives, submit to your husbands. And this says, husbands, when you're filled with the Spirit, you're going to love your wife as Christ loved the church. You're not just going to be willing to die for her. You're going to live your life every day as if you're willing to die for her. Die for her. Love her as Christ loved the church. What does that mean? Holds nothing back. It's not about your needs and your desires and your wants and what you can get and what makes you happy. It's about serving her. And, and, and men, Jesus never beats the church to do anything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Children, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Spirit-filled. Can children be spirit-filled? You bet they can. I think some of our kids are more spirit-filled than, their, than their, the adults around here. You know, most Sundays, we got kids on their face down here at the altar. Why don't we see adults down here on their face? But you can't do that. You can't obey your parents and the Lord, children, unless you're spirit-filled, filled with the Spirit. And then it goes on. It says, masters, uh, excuse me, it says, bond slaves, bond servants, to your masters, to, to serve them, to obey them, as if they were Jesus Christ. Man, when a boss has an has a employee that is serving them like that, they don't steal, they show up on time, they don't gripe, they don't complain, they say, yes, sir, I can stay late, I'll help, whatever. I mean, a boss is, doesn't see employees like that very often. Servants, he says. When you can't do that in your own strength, you can't do that, especially when they're abusive, they don't care, they don't appreciate you. But when you're spirit-filled, you can do that. Masters, he talks about how to treat your slaves, your servants, bosses, your employees. And you can't do those things unless you're filled with the Spirit of God. And then he says, wives, husbands, children, bond servants, in chapter 6, verse 5, Verse 9, and masters, and then in verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Can I tell you what that literally says? Literally, it says, the remaining ones. So he's talked about people who are wives, husbands, children, bond servants, and masters. What if you're not any of those? He says, and the remaining ones, the rest of you, literally, it says, be continually empowered in the Lord and in the might of the strength of him. So when we talk about being filled with the Spirit, we're talking about being filled up with Jesus, filled with Him, His life, having control in us. So we talk about walking in the Spirit, and we see these phenomenal outcomes where I can overcome sin, defeat sin, I can express the life of Christ, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, and so forth. I can follow the Lord in my life. Uh, I can redeem the time, not waste days. Uh, my life can have meaning, I can do the will of God, all those things. But what's the power for that? What's the power for that? Jesus is the power for that. You can't do it. And that's where Christians get in trouble. We, we, we read those passages about wives and husbands and children and masters and slaves. We read those things and we say, okay, that's the way I'm supposed to do it. That's what it says, so I'm going to go over here and I'm going to do it on Monday. And, and maybe you have some success and then you have a lot of failure. Well, what's broken there is that you're trying to do it in your own strength. You can't. And he never said you could. He never intended for you to live that way. So let me move to the next word. We talked about walking. By the way, let me go ahead and do this. 
And uh, y'all just bear with me. Uh, I saw Dr. Adrian Rogers do this years ago, and I think it's worth repeating, okay? The way that you and I approach Christian living, when I describe doing it in our own strength, is a lot of times is like this, okay? Um, let's pretend that you're the jacket. And so we read in the Bible some command or admonition, something that we're supposed to do. And so we say, jacket, stand. And it can't do anything. Jacket, try harder next time. Stand. Can't do it. Jacket, wave at everybody. Let's try harder next time. Jacket, wave at everybody. You ever feel like that? You know, I, I, I can promise you there have been times where I've had wonderful, quiet times, time alone with God, prayed up and stuff, and get on the freeway and lose every drop of religion I had. <laughs> now, if I take this coat, though, and I put it on, okay, and I say, coat, stand. Impressive. Coat, wave. Thank you very much. <laughs> you say, oh, pastor, that's not the jacket doing that. That's you inside the jacket doing that. Exactly. That's the point. It's not us doing it. It's the Savior inside of us who does it. It's the Savior inside of us. So we've looked at walking. We've looked at where the power comes from. The obedience is walking. We've seen where the power comes from. It comes in, in being filled. But now I want you to look at the word drink. The word drink, okay? We're gonna, you have to listen quicker, okay? I'm getting hungry. The word drink. John chapter 7, verse 37. And uh, this is a beautiful passage of Scripture. This is the Lord Jesus talking to us about the life that you and I have right now. But he's prophesying this life. But he talks about this life. John 7, verse 37. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. As the, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Look at that. If anyone thirsts, let him come to who? Me. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And so, as he describes it, it's clear that he's talking about the Holy Spirit of God. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers. There's that overflowing we talked about with being filled. Rivers of living water. Rivers of living water. We're not talking about a little bit of success. We're talking about a ridiculous amount of success. We're talking about an impact on your family, an impact on your world, an impact on your church, an impact on your community that people look at and say, I know it's not that person. Something's happening. Something's going on inside that individual. And so, so, so what's happening is the Holy Spirit is filling them up and they're overflowing. But how did it begin? Well, let's think for a moment. When we talked about being filled, it said, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a reason he said, I mean, being drunk, we know being drunk is a sin. And so he says, don't be drunk with wine. He says, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, he could have said, don't cuss. 
but be filled with spirit. I mean, he could have picked any number of sins, but he picked the sin of drunkenness. Why? Because there's a, there's a contrast here. That to be drunk with wine, something about that is in contrast to being filled with the spirit. So when you're, when you're drunk with wine and you drive your car down the road and they pull you over, you're charged with what? Driving? DWI, driving while intoxicated. In the old days we said DUI, driving under the influence. Why? Because that alcohol is filling you up and it's controlling you. It's influencing you. It's affecting you. And so when someone's filled up with the Spirit of God, they're under the influence or under the control of the Holy Spirit. But how does that happen? Well, how do you get drunk? What do you have to do to get drunk? You have to drink. Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Drink. Now, the the significance of drinking is that you take something, theoretically, that's outside of you. And, you know, so many of us as Christians who have not learned to deal with him through the Holy Spirit, we think of the entire Christian life as something out here I'm trying to get in here. Jesus is out here, I see him in movies, I read about him in books, I read about him in the Bible, he's out here, and somehow I want to do what he says, I want to follow him, I want to be close to him, and so forth. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Drink. Now what does it mean to drink? What does it mean to go to Jesus and drink? Well, we don't have to guess, because he tells us in that verse, Let him come to me and drink, and then right away, in a synonymous statement, he says, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so what happens is, Jesus is not out here anymore for this kind of Christian. I am bringing him into my life, okay? He's already there, but I'm understanding that he's in my life. And by drinking or believing, and I'm not talking about just believing what he said, I'm going to take it a step further, okay? You're just going to have to trust me on this. I'm going to take it a step further. It's not just believing what he says or believing him. It's believing in him. It is resting your life on Christ. My entire life. Jesus, we learned this last year. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. The whole way that a branch lives and bears fruit is that it abides in the vine, and that vine supplies everything to the branch. Jesus said, if you're going to drink, you're going to have to believe in me, rest in me, draw from me, look to me for everything, everything. When you lack something, your first movement should be to turn to Jesus. When you need something, your first movement should be to Jesus. When you get ready to do something, your first move should be, Lord, if you don't do this, I'm sunk. And there's this inner reliance on him. That's the drinking. That's the drinking. To be filled with the Spirit means i got to get out of the way. i got to move all of my resistance out of the way. i got to say yes to him. i got to surrender to him. There's a lot of words we could use. Jesus just said, come to me and drink. Look to me for your source. Look to me for everything. I will supply you with what you need. Just as the Scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit who had not yet been given. And so we have to drink. Walking around in spirit is obedience, but it's powered by having been filled by the spirit and be being filled with the spirit on a regular basis. 
yielding to him, depending on him for everything, drinking. He is my source. He is all I need. Jesus is enough. He is sufficient. Drinking from him, him only, not looking anywhere else, looking to Christ. He is enough. But if I'm going to walk, I can't walk until I'm filled. I can't be filled unless I drink. And I can't drink unless I thirst. And that's the last word, thirst. Now, isn't it interesting because Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Before you can drink, you've got to be thirsty. And in the Old Testament, we read such beautiful descriptions of people who had a relationship with God in terms of thirst. Just listen. I'm, I'm going to read Isaiah 44 in a minute, but listen to two others. Isaiah, Isaiah uh, excuse me, Psalm 42, just listen. Psalm 42, verse 1. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. He's not talking about physical thirst. It's a soul thirst. My soul thirsts for God. Does your soul thirst for God? Psalm 63, O oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. In a desert, the water is so precious that they name the places where water can be found. And people plan their trips by being able to move from one spot where there's water to the next spot where there's water to the next spot where there's water. Do you desire him like that? Do you long for him like that? That you cannot do life without him? Thirst. Thirst. In Isaiah 44, the prophet writes, and this is a promise from God, Isaiah 44, verse 3. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. And there's more than one promise in that verse. There's one promise here about your children and grandchildren. And that's another sermon. But I just want you to hear verse 3. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. How's your heart today? Oh, you may be thirsty, but are you thirsty for God? You have a soul thirst for God? You see, he can't satisfy a thirst you don't have. And so the real challenge becomes, if I want to walk in the Spirit, I know I have to be filled. If I'm going to be filled, I know I need to drink. If I'm going to drink, I've got to be thirsty. And, and thirst, like he's describing here, is a kind of thirst that drives you through wastelands and wilderness and, and every place that other people might stop and look at and say how beautiful and how nice it is but you're looking for one thing you're looking for God because you know he's the only one that can satisfy you a lot of people try to quench their hunger and thirst with a lot of junk 
And the world always has something else for you to try. Always something else to try to quench your thirst. This will make me happy. I'll work here. I'll make some money. I'll retire, whatever. We all have something we think that if I can get to this place in life, my thirst will be quenched. I'll be satisfied. It is a lie. There's only one who can satisfy the thirst in your soul. Just one. Are you thirsty? So let's go over that again. Look at this final final slide. Life in the Spirit. Life in the Spirit. I did it backwards, didn't I? I did it that way on purpose. We talk about walking in the Spirit, but I can't walk unless I've been filled. I can't be filled unless I drink. I can't drink unless I thirst. <laughs> so where do you need to begin? I don't know where you are on this, this spectrum. The Bible just teaches us like a daisy chain, just moves us from one to the other to the other. And all we did was ask questions. How does this happen? How does this happen? How does this happen? And so some of us, probably most of us, each day we just need to take a, take a time out. Say, what am I thirsty for today? What am I thirsty for today? Maybe you're worried, maybe you're anxious, maybe you're troubled, maybe you're down, maybe you're up because of some circumstance that's taking place and tomorrow that's different and every day is different. Those are wasted days. Someday we're going to stand before God and we're going to give account of our lives. And I can just say that the days where I was not spirit-filled are going to be wood, hay, and stubble. But all oh, those days when I was thirsty. Those days when I was thirsty and I drank and I saw that he was the only one who could satisfy my soul. And, and I just stepped aside and I said, Lord, you can have me, you can have every part of me, you can have everything that I am and do whatever you want to with me today. And he filled me. And then I spent that day, or I spent those moments, or I spent that hour, or I spent those minutes enjoying his presence, even as I interacted with other people. Walking, conscious that he's there, not alone, never abandoned. Are you thirsty? This is what he made you for. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, in just a moment we're going to stand and sing and the pastors and I will be down front. I believe that there's tremendous value and benefit to publicly putting your trust in Christ, saying, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to trust what he did for me on the cross. And if you will trust Jesus today, not only will your sins be forgiven, not only will heaven become your new destiny, but his Holy Spirit will come to live inside you, and you can experience him every day, every day. He wants you to be with him. He wants you to know him.